Welcome, everybody. I'm really excited about the program tonight because I get to talk to one of my favorite people. His name is Maximilian Alvarez, and he is the editor-in-chief of the Real News Network in Baltimore. He is also the author of a book that will be published in June. It's called The Work of Living, Working People Talk About Their Lives and the Year the World Broke, which is a collection of interviews with workers conducted during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. His work has been featured in a range of outlets, including The Nation, In These Times, Boston Review, and The Baffler. Also, you can find Max on Twitter at Maximilian underscore ALV. Max Alvarez, thank you so much for being here. Hey, Marianne. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Right back at you. Well, you and I were talking before about what a serendipitous moment this is. I wanted to talk to you about the general arc of the labor movement in the United States. One of the things that I so appreciate about you and the work you do is that you are a big picture person. And I think that part of the problems we have in America today is how many people aren't quite connecting the dots. So you talk very specifically about the plight of working people in the United States, particularly their betrayal by the economic and political uh, structures of our day. But you give a historical context that I know for me always makes things much easier to understand. And, and I think a historical perspective is very empowering. Now, it just so happens that we were talking after really a moment that I think you'll agree with me will go down in the history books. And that is uh, the unionization of the Amazon JFK 8 warehouse in Staten Island, a movement that was led by Christian Smalls, uh, his having raised, what, $120,000, $140,000 on a GoFundMe page, um, the union busting, I think it's fair to say, the absolute union busting efforts of Amazon, trying to make that happen, uh, swelled up to greater than $4 million. But it happened, and this is a huge moment, not only in terms of workers at, at um, uh, Amazon, but really workers across the country, and the whole revitalization, reinvigoration of the labor movement. So I'd love to throw it over to you. I'm someone who remembers a time uh, when I was younger when the labor movement was a very, very big deal and a very significant factor politically. I remember... Um, how all of that was just decimated by certain powers that be. Um, so it's wonderful to see this reinvigoration, but particularly with what's happening now, what lies ahead. So I want to throw it back over to you. Uh, I'd love to hear your take as you see it, that you want people to know about the labor movement, about what's happening now. And also, uh, what I also very much appreciate about you, you totally see how this fits into the larger political picture in the United States. So go for it, Max. Tell me what you got. Well, thank you. I really, yeah, appreciate that, and I'm I'm honored and and humbled, and I'll do my best. Um, you know, we'll we'll start where where you started, right? I mean, we have to first of all acknowledge and uh, I mean just shout out the incredible historic victory of the Amazon labor union at the JFK eight uh, awesome. warehouse in Staten Island. Um, you're right. I mean, you know, as uh, I was a historian in a past life um, and, you know, my my uh, dissertation advisors made me read just a whole lot of labor history in the U.S. and Mexico and Europe. And this is one of those events that will have an entire yeah. chapter, right, yeah. I think, yeah. because yeah, well. of how <clears throat> momentous it is, how momentous it could potentially be, because in a lot of ways – 
the significance of this will depend on what happens next. I think like that's um, where, you, like you were saying, we got to look at both the particular circumstances and how it fits into the broader sweep of um, the labor movement in this country and beyond. And so I think in terms of what this could mean, it's very hard to say. Um, but, you know, when when we're looking for historical comparisons, there really isn't anything in recent memory that we can compare this to. And I'll explain to, to viewers and listeners in a minute why I say that. But you have to – that's not to say that this is unprecedented in American history. In fact, um, this is in many ways how the labor movement was born, the organized labor movement in this country, right? Because you know, in labor's biggest decade in many ways, which was the 1930s and up until the mid-1940s, Right. We got to remember this was an incredibly important and contentious period in American history where a Great Depression had absolutely decimated the country. Entire livelihoods were wiped <clears throat> away. Entire workforces and crops were, failed. Right. This was a very bleak time in this country's history. And working people had already been taking it on the chin for quite some time. We were still dealing with child labor. We were still dealing with rampant discrimination and racism and all forms of discrimination in and outside of the workplace. Uh, we were still dealing with um, brutal working conditions that broke workers' bodies and a lot of people died on the job. It was not a great time, you know, like in that regard. But in that crucible, the struggle of labor was really revived in a way and really grew in a way that we had never seen up until that point in this country. And it started, it didn't all happen at once, right? It started with incredible victories like these that themselves started with single conversations between co-workers passing a pamphlet or a leaflet out and talking about it with your co-workers <laughs> learning about how you could do something about you know the the conditions that you were working in the lot that you had in life and so when I think about the precedent, um, you know, in terms of the significance of what this could mean move going forward, I think back to those early years in the 1930s, um, mainly like, you know, we can talk a little bit about that that history if you want in a bit. But, you know, like in 1933, um, you know, FDR passed the or pushed the National Industrial Recovery Act, which in principle guaranteed unions right to exist. So that was a game changer, but it did not really give the government much teeth to enforce that on the shop floor. You know, bosses flouted the law left and right. Um, they still, you know, broke uh, um, strikes. They, they still surveilled and tortured uh, and even killed workers and organizers. So it really wasn't until you know, I think it was around 1935 when, in fact, the first New Deal was overturned by the Supreme Court. And then FDR pushed through the second New Deal, um, which included the National Labor Relations Act or the Wagner Act. That gave unions more teeth. Uh, that gave, you know, like uh, the federal government more enforcement power. And so you saw workers using this and responding to this. And so the reason I bring that up right now is because it's in that crucible of the 30s where you see examples like what we just saw at um, Amazon in Staten Island, right? Because 
again, like, so I mentioned, you know, the, the corollaries between these two periods in history of what this victory could mean for the rest of the labor movement. But let's look closely at what ha just happened at JFK, right? I mean, because this is not just David and Goliath. This is David whooping Goliath's butt um, when no one gave um, David a chance. Um, and that's, that's may, really not underselling it. I um, Before you go there, I want to uh, dig a little deeper into some very significant things you pointed out. You were talking about the desperation that people felt in the 20s and 30s. And that was, of course, coming out of the first Gilded Age. Um, people despair, people's frustration, people's anger. Um, and I thought it was very interesting that you pointed to a parallel uh, between the anger that people were feeling then at the uh, systemic injustices to the anger that people are feeling now, the feeling of we're just not going to take it anymore, which of course is a result of the second uh, Gilded Age. The other thing that was so interesting about what you just said was you were talking about Roosevelt establishing the neighbor, uh, um, the Labor uh, Relations Board, right? The National Labor uh, Labor Relations Board. That's exactly what Amazon is reacting to right now by saying that the National Labor Relations Board uh, unfairly uh, was prejudiced on the side of. Uh, the unionizing forces in this case. So it's so interesting how the very piece of legislation that Roosevelt passed is the one that's at the core of the struggle today. Just wrapping up that, that parallelism and that reiteration of history, I think that context is important. So having said that, let's go on to what you were saying about what's happening today. Well, and, and just to quickly piggyback on that point, I was actually uh, I tweeted about this because I couldn't I couldn't like sit uh, on the sidelines because as soon as the news broke of the you know Amazon Union victory um, <clears throat> in Staten Island, you had a whole you know the the ruling class and its acolytes are crapping their pants right now, <laughs> right? I mean, well, like, as you said, it's not just David and Goliath; it's David kicking Goliath's butt. Although Goliath yeah. has a few more errors in his quiver, I'm afraid, which we need to hear about also. But please, go absolutely, on. yeah. So we'll we'll definitely talk about you know this is this is not a moment to sit on our laurels. Mm -mm. Amazon is mm -mm. not going to take this quietly. There are a lot of things that they can. And most likely will do. And so, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that in a bit. But um, as soon as the news broke about this, the thing that cracked me up is I saw Jim Cramer, our old friend. We went as nuts. <laughs> as Bernie said, my good, friend, my good friend Jim Cramer was Yeah, your going, good friend Jim Cramer. <laughs> he was going nuts. And he uh, was saying, like, this is going to be devastating. The union is going to dictate everything. You can't tell people when to stay late and... Yeah, it's going to say, like, it's going to dictate the hours. It's going to take that power away from the bosses. And the funny thing is, is I went back and I found a, a book of la about labor history where you actually had quotes from capitalists in the 1930s saying almost verbatim what Jim Cramer was whining about. They were saying, suddenly, our ability to dictate everything to our workers, to treat our workers like subhuman widgets. And we would tell them, you know, like their hours, their wages, their working conditions, and they wouldn't have a damn thing to say about it. Suddenly that was put into question and the ruling class flipped out. And that's what's happening now. And that's, you know, again, I think a good thing because working people have been treated with such callous disregard. They've been, their humanity has not been recognized um, by their 
their employers, let alone their their politicians and so on and so forth. And so you, you in a lot of ways, I always see the labor movement as human beings collectively asserting their humanity, their dignity, their rights. They're, 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 they are demanding respect. We are demanding respect. And that is what you know we really saw in the 1930s. That's what we've seen uh, happened this past week at Amazon, right? Because as you mentioned, um, so Christian Smalls, um, you know, was fired two years ago um, after protesting Amazon's COVID safety policies. And then Amazon basically, you know, made up, it feels very made up, right? But, um, you know, they, they essentially said that Christian himself somehow violated some policy and then they fired him. And then we actually found leaked documents through um, journalists who who uncovered them, right, that Amazon really wanted to go after Chris. They really wanted to paint him as the sort of like corrupt face of the unionization effort, uh, that he was not smart or articulate, that he mm, was, you mm, know, a, a mm, grifter. Mm. Like they wanted to, to mm. paint Chris um, in these negative lights. And that really played, that really backfired as the, the union campaign gained steam. But let's take let's go back to those two years ago, right? COVID was settling in. Um, the world had been turned upside down. A man at a warehouse that you know where like eight thousand workers are. It's a truly massive facility. Gets fired, and you know any one of us probably would have just said. Okay, well, I guess I got to go find work somewhere else. I guess maybe, you know, it's a pandemic. A lot of people are losing their jobs. So maybe the only thing that I have is to go do gig work or something like that. Um, when a lot of people lost their jobs in those early days of the pandemic, you actually saw companies like, especially like um, Instacart, push to hire hundreds of thousands of new people because they knew that A, a lot of people had lost their jobs and B, a lot of people wanted to order their food from home. So they very much tried to capitalize on what was happening. And so, you know, when Christian Smalls was in that position, right, you know, the, the odds of, of eventually doing what the Amazon labor union did, you know, were a billion to one, it must have seemed, just because not only because of those circumstances, but because of all the ways that it's actually very, very hard to unionize your workplace in this country in general, to say nothing of trying to unionize the second largest private employer in the country and one of the most powerful corporations in the entire world. So you that's that's what I mean when I say David kind of taking on Goliath. So what happened? Right. You know, from there, we I think, you know, the the, the following year, the biggest story was Bessemer, um, the Amazon union campaign in Alabama. Uh, I traveled to Bessemer this time last year or a little bit before to report on that union drive um, where workers were voting on whether or not to uh, unionize with the retail, wholesale and department store union. This was also a massive fulfillment center with with um, thousands and thousands of workers. And um, it was a, an international news story. And Chris Smalls himself, along with some other folks from New York, went down to Bessemer. They wanted to learn what was going on there and, and see, you know, like if it would translate to their warehouse in Staten Island. We know that that first union vote was ultimately, um, you know, defeated uh, by quite a large margin. But then the National Labor Relations Board, again, the product of the 1930s and the New Deal, uh, determined that Amazon had illegally, um, you know, tampered with the election, pointing specifically to Amazon installing a United States Postal Service mailbox like 
right in front of its front doors. That where that warehouse, I've been there. It's like five or three football fields stacked on top of each other, and it's got one main entrance because they want to surveil people. They want people to come through and come out of one spot. They actually give spot checks to people to make sure that they're not stealing any of the merchandise. We know that surveillance is a huge part of what Amazon does, not just on the consumer-facing side, but it very much applies that to its workers. And so Amazon actually had the um, uh, Postal Service install this mailbox and encourage workers to submit their ballots there where the company could essentially see them. So um, they got another round at an election, which is actually unfolding right now. The union election in Bessemer, the pro-union votes are about 100 votes down, but there are over 400 ballots that have been challenged that could very much swing the election one way or the other. But essentially, you had a one type of unionization campaign there in Bessemer. You had an already established union, the RWDSU, that had field organizers and uh, Mid-South Council down there in Birmingham. They had their sort of playbook for how to do this. The, the folks there have unionized a lot of important workplaces in the Alabama uh, area. Um, if you go there and talk to them, you'll see records of all their important wins and all the ways that they serve workers, not just at Amazon, but in that entire uh, area. But they had, you know, as an established union, Right. They have a certain a certain sort of way of trying to, you know, when when workers approach the RWDSU saying we want to try to unionize, you know, the union says, OK, let's let's talk. Let's let's talk about where workers are, what needs to be done. Let's build a campaign, so on and so forth. That was not what Christian Smalls, uh, Derek Palmer, all of the folks uh, who ended up being part of this uh, worker organizing committee at Amazon Labor Union had. Um, they did. They they did have folks from other unions like Seth Goldstein from the OPEU, like helping out. They had a lot of folks, kind of, um, you know, they sought out a lot of counsel from from organizers and stuff like that, which was Im really important. But they really were. This is again speaking to just how incredible this victory was. Not only were they going up against a company as powerful as Amazon that was paying union busting consultants and and using every tool in its toolbox to try to discourage workers from voting for a union but they were essentially building a union while they were doing from it scratch. while like from the ground up <clears throat> and they did it if you read folks like Luis Feliz Leon at Labor Notes if you read folks like Lauren Kaorly Gurley at Vice they will detail for you how the workers actually grassroots organized. They formed worker-to-worker -worker committees. They talked to folks. They posted up at the bus stop outside of that massive warehouse. They spent 12 hours working in the warehouse, and then they spent 8, 10 hours outside trying to organize folks or organizing in the break rooms. Like It was a real worker-led movement, and that actually made it um, very hard for Amazon to use the, its typical union-busting playbook, right? Because this is the last thing I'll say, and I'll shut up. When when you were in Bessemer, this is the thing about the union busting consultants is they're paid so much, but they don't actually do very much. They, they're very lazy at their jobs because they just recycle the same talking points at any unionization effort and in any workplace around the country. They say, oh, the union is an outside third party that's going to get in between you and management, <clears throat> right? So, you know, if you are in Bessemer, if um, you are talking to union organizers who don't work at the plant, that might seep into your brain. Again, it's it's not true, but it's it, they play on that ignorance that we all have when it comes to unions. But in, in New York, 
they couldn't say that. They couldn't say the union is an outside third party. They said, no, it's us. Like, it, it, there is no other outside union. It's just literally the workers here. Um, and then workers started to actually call out the union busters, the managers in the captive audience meetings. They would they would fluster them. They would, they would respond to their talking points. And then eventually they started kicking people out of these meetings because they weren't going the way that they wanted. So in a way, I almost feel like the what made Amazon labor union an underdog story and that they really only had the worker organizing committee. They really only had uh, folks that they could organize on the shop floor with some kind of volunteer help from the outside, but they did not have an institutional union infrastructure supporting them. That actually may have like been a weak spot for Amazon because it couldn't, um, you know, tarnish the union the way that it normally is able to. And because the workers and organizers, you know, were there, they they clearly cared about their fellow workers and Amazon just kept firing people and punishing people. It just really turned more workers against Amazon and more in favor of the union. So in fact, they're what many would see as their weakness became their strength. Well, it's a little bit of you can't use the master's tools to tear down the master's house. They didn't have the master's tools. You know, I, I would assume that some of what happened at uh, Bessemer had a kind of psychological effect on the people at Staten Island. Um, they saw what happened. You know, I was curious, and you answered it a little bit, kind of what makes anybody vote against unionizing in a situation like that? So you said that they tell workers that if you vote for a union, you will have less access to management. What What is the argument on, on behalf of Amazon uh, uh, corporate? What is the argument that they are presenting to workers for, as a reason why unionization would be bad for them? So the first is like, it's good cop, bad cop, right? Um, so the good cop side, right, is they try to stress all the ways that your company can take better care of you than a union could, right? And so what Amazon in Bessemer would always say is, um, well, we pay better than anyone else in Bessemer, right? At, which in some lights is true. Bessemer, when I was down there, had twice the, the rate of the national poverty, twice the national poverty rate in Bessemer, right? Bessemer is a deindustrialized majority black town. The very site that the Amazon Fulfillment Center in Bessemer currently sits on used to be a steel workers union shop. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, like so many other parts of this country, that uh, the, the economic heart of that town was ripped out. Deindustrialization happened. Um, you see, you know, like th there is a lot of poverty there. And so a 15-ish dollar an hour warehouse job is going to seem pretty nice, right? But as the RWDSU and workers at Amazon pointed out, uh, unionized workers in the, the greater Birmingham area actually made around $2 more than what Amazon was paying. So that was one way that you could counter that sort of talking point. They would also say, you know, like, oh, you know, you have an opportunity for advancement here and you can sort of lock in these great benefits. Um, the, the fine print there is that Amazon, as we know, um, you know, it, it, it treats its workers like machines, like worse than machines. The machines, as people have there said, actually get treated better than the human beings. I guess that's one thing, just a, a parenthetical, is that even after the, the first union defeat in Bessemer, 
that's not like all the issues that we in the media and that workers there were raising about the working conditions at Amazon went away. They didn't go away, right? And I mean, we we know all the horror stories of Amazon workers um, pulling these long hours, grueling, uh, doing grueling work, you know, essentially only having enough energy to go home, eat something, fall asleep on their couch, go back the next day to do it again. I had workers tell me, I sit in my car before my shift dreading going in because I don't know if I can do it anymore because human bodies break. And Amazon knows that, which is why Amazon's it's part of Amazon's business model to have a high turnover rate. There, there are actually a lot of Amazon facilities where the turnover rate is 150%. What that means for people watching and listening is that it's like trying to organize a bathtub, right? Where you have a faucet pouring new workers in <clears throat> and a drain with workers coming out. 150% of those workers on average are not going to be there within a year because Amazon pushes people so hard that they don't actually stay at the job long enough to recoup those benefits that Amazon touts. So that's, you know, some of the good cop stuff. The other one, like you mentioned, is they say, oh, now without a union, you could just come to management if you have an issue and we'll work it out here. And what workers will say is like, well, we can't do that now, right? You don't listen to us, you know, like you 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 tell us to go F ourselves, right? So like, you know, then there's the bad cop. There's the scaring people into what a union could mean if they bring it in because let's be real. I mean, you know, union density in this country is at its lowest point ever since, you know, the 1930s. Like the new numbers came out earlier this year, I think in January, we're we're barely hovering above 10% union density nationally, which is the percentage of workers in the American workforce who are unionized. And this is the result of decades of war on labor. It is also, you know, the result of larger forces like deindustrialization, political economic changes. There are also ways that unions themselves, you know, like have been complicit in their own downfall. I think that gets overplayed, but we can't pretend it isn't part of this story. And I think one of the other exciting parts about this moment is that you have more rank and file democracy from workers who want to revive their unions, want to rebuild power in their unions, want to bring more people into their unions and fix the problems that people know and have heard about with unions. So um, the, the, the scaring tactic from the union busters about what a union will mean when I mentioned the union density part, I mentioned that because most people don't know what it's like to work in a unionized workplace. Um, you know, like I, the only time I ever worked at a unionized workplace was as a graduate student, you know, because shout out to GEO at the University of Michigan. But when I was working at restaurants, when I was working in warehouses and factories, when I was a pizza delivery driver, I was not part of a union. I had no idea what being part of a union was. I had no idea what it meant for someone to have my back at work. And that is ultimately what being in a union means. It's not a, not a bureaucracy. It's not, you know, like some scary third party unionizing your workplace means that you and your coworkers have each other's backs and that you are not at the beck and call of your boss, that, that you actually have some power to say, no, you have some power to bargain over your working conditions, your wages and so on and so forth. But a lot of people don't know that. 
And when you live in some in a place like Bessemer that has been economically devastated, um, the fear of what could happen, because the union busting consultants are always going to say, you know, you could get a contract where you earn more, you could earn the same, or you could earn less. That every every union buster says this all the time, um, and and workers are cluing into that. They're just like, well, you know, like why. Why, that doesn't actually make a whole lot of sense. Why would it, you know, like, but it's, again, it's, it's playing on that fear of the unknown. Um, and, and they're going to say, oh, like you have to go through the union for everything. You're not going to be able to talk to us. Right. You know, there are even other like horrible examples. Like I covered uh, a quote unquote progressive company, a vegan company called no evil foods that, um, we actually got workers who leaked audio from union busting meetings that I ran on my show, Working People. And then I interviewed some of the workers from No Evil Foods in North Carolina. Um, no Evil Foods busted their union drive as well, but they tried to use progressive talking points to do so. They tried to say, oh, the because the workers there wanted to unionize with the US, UFCW, the United Food and Commercial Workers, who represent meatpacking workers. And so since this was a vegan plant, they manufactured plant-based meat. The bosses said, oh, well, you don't want to be affiliated with a union that represents workers in the meatpacking industry because that goes against our values. Or they would say the union may make you work with a, a sexual abuser because, you know, like that person is protected by the union, so on and so forth. Right. So there are a lot of different ways that they try to spin this, but it all really plays on people's ignorance of what having a union in their workplace means. So Amazon really has, is at war with the NLRB on two fronts now. One having to do with the pushback that they received um, on the Bessemer uh, situation. And secondly, the fact that they're trying to make it about the NLRB, uh, what just happened um, on Staten Island. What, where do you see this going now in terms of Amazon's uh, response to what's happening, uh, where things will go right now? I know that they already received their first letter from the newly formed union. They'd like to have a meeting as soon as possible. I, I, you know, don't you wish you could just be a fly on the wall when, some, when a letter like that was opened? Um, what do you think they're going to do now, Max? I do wish I could have been a fly on the wall because, mm -hmm. I mean, again, I just I, I love the scrappiness here. Um, and, and just to pick up on that point by way of answering your question, right, you know, one thing that made me very uncomfortable after the loss in Bessemer this time last year was um, there was a lot of armchair quarterbacking, you know, in the wake of the Bessemer defeat. There were a lot of people pointing fingers. There were a lot of people saying, oh, the media – overhype this, right? And, and you know, we, we shouldn't have gotten our hopes up because now those hopes are dashed and everyone's going to get demoralized. Or people who had never set foot in Bessemer were pointing the fingers at the RWDSU Mid-South Council, who, I mean, like, in just a parenthesis, these people are dedicated organizers. They are dedicated to uh, lifting up their fellow workers to protecting them, going to the bat, going to the mat for them. Yeah, they lost this election. There are things that they did that they have tried to correct in the, the next election. But anyone who's trying to pretend that like these folks and the workers at the Amazon warehouse weren't dedicated to what they're doing and didn't have reasons for doing what they're doing is really kidding themselves and needs to take a long, hard look at why they feel the need to sort 
sort of armchair quarterback instead of recognizing that we are in a dogfight. We are up against, you know, like very uh, uh, huge and, and, and austere and imposing odds. And we need to encourage creativity. We need to think outside the box, which is exactly what uh, the Amazon Labor Union in Staten Island did, right? People, um, you know, were, were constantly pointing to like, you know, real, you know, uh, amazing, impressive storied organizers like Jane McAlevey and saying like, well, they didn't follow her script to the letter. They didn't go knocking on doors in the Bessemer election. And that's why they failed. Well, one thing that folks in Staten Island have been saying is like, well, we tried that. We tried knocking on doors and it turned people off. So we stopped doing it. Right. So there's no one way to make this work. And, and I think that right now we need to learn as much as we can about how Amazon Labor Union achieved this incredible victory and stop pretending pretending like there is a one-size-fits-all solution to this because there is not. Now, the reason I mentioned that, right, is because there are also, uh, we have not seen all the things that, you know, the ruling class is going to throw at us, not by a long shot, right? And Amazon, you know, like has a lot of other weapons that it can pull out. It could even go nuclear, and when I say nuclear, the nuclear option is to close the plant uh, or close the oh. warehouse. Um, now, they legally cool. cannot do that in uh, retaliation of a unionization drive. Okay. But the way that corporations get around that all the time is they fabricate some other reason for why it was necessary and as a cost-cutting measure or something like that. Luis Feliz Leon and, and Lauren Gurley actually recently told me on my podcast that you know before that JFK 8 uh, warehouse was there – the majority of packages that were delivered to New York City were coming from Kentucky. So Amazon has the infrastructure to reroute, you know, like those uh, packages to other facilities in the area or even farther away from the area. And if it wants to go nuclear and, you know, like send a message that we will shut down an 8,000 plus uh, person uh, facility if you try to unionize, you know, we're kind of all, what are we going to do about that, right? I mean, we can go well, through the the legal challenges of the NLRB, but it's going to send a very clear message. Now, one thing that's really important about the New York struggle is that in that same facility next to JFK 8, there's another facility that is about to vote on whether or not to unionize with the Amazon Labor Union. And this is uh, the Staten Island LDJ 5. It's a much smaller facility, but... Um, you know, at least from what we're hearing, and I think especially after the victory at JFK, I think workers here, you know, like at this other facility may have uh, a little more pep in their step. So if they unionize as well, that takes away um, Amazon's bargaining chip, like, because it's no longer, it's not contained to just one warehouse, right? Well, also, and, oh, go ahead. Well, I think that surely they know this is such a huge national story. The public would be very, very upset. I mean, if, if the public sees Amazon respond to this by uh, shutting down the warehouse, they would have a real problem on their hands in terms of um, public opinion. I think they would. I think that, um, you know, that's... Um you know, again, like it's it's still not out of the realm of possibility, but but like you said, like they would be walking into, you know, a world of crap because I think then you'd see more politicians getting involved. Yeah. You'd see um people really calling BS on on whatever justification they came they they came to for for closing this plant but it has happened it does happen it happened at like do a dollar general that unionized recently but the other thing so if they don't go nuclear 
the more common option is they can delay they can challenge like you said they're they're already trying to like basically impugn the power of the nlrb in the first place to you know like do what it does so they're trying to kind of flip over the chessboard and find they're they're going to thrash they're going to swing their arms they're going to try to land whatever punches they can but when it comes to negotiating um, this is what companies and employers all across the board, not just in places like Amazon do, is they delay. I just was down in D.C. for The Real News interviewing non-tenure track faculty at the historic HBCU Howard University, one of the most storied higher ed institutions in the country, built after the Civil War, right? It has an incredible mission, incredible student body, incredible faculty. The non-tenure track faculty had been trying for almost four years to negotiate their first contract with the university administration after they voted to unionize in 2018. And it took non-tenure track faculty um, saying that they were going to go on strike, you know, um, to, to get this deal. Yeah. Uh, and that was what finally got the university administration to, um, you know, propose a tentative agreement that the union voted on. But it took almost four years. And so mo the average contract after a unionization vote takes over a year. Um, and some of them go on for two, three, four years. So that's another way is that you can sap that energy by delaying, yeah. by demoralizing, yeah, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. So I have some questions for you here. Um, first of all, I want to go back a little bit because, like I said, I remember a time when unions were a much bigger factor, and I think they will be again now. I think even the companies that you mentioned just now would have a harder time uh, because it's now become a story again. It's hot and sexy again to even be talking about labor unions, which it wasn't for a while. What was the main, would you would you look at it basically as the Reagan administration? Would you look at it in the 70s or the 80s? When did this huge pall come over the union, uh, over the labor movement? And what was the main um, um, tool, uh, weapon against it that was used to um, sort of push it to the side? And by the way, when you were talking about labor density and you were saying it's 10% now, at its height, what was it? I mean, at its height, I mean, I would say, you know, we were looking at um, between 30 and 40 percent. Mm -hmm. That's what um, I felt when I was growing up. So what years would that have been? So, you know, you had uh, a lot of union density in like the 50s. Okay. 60s. So when did it start? When did the great attack begin? 70s, 80s? Well, well, so it's a really interesting question. Um, and, you know, I would encourage folks to to read as much as they can about this, because I think one of the beautiful things about the conversation that we're having here, right, is that even in Staten Island, not just there, one of the motivating factors was that people were reading about labor history. You even see, you know, organizers with the Amazon Labor Union, they said that one of their main manuals was a, a, an organizing manual from the 30s, right? You know, that that um, in that in that crucible of the 30s, where again, like you didn't have the kind of organized institutional labor movement, you had workers who were pissed and, and who were trying to use whatever, you know, openings that were provided by federal policy and so on and so forth to demand that their employers recognize their unions. So this is where you had things like the, the Flint and Detroit sit-down strikes, right? Those 
people forget, like those were people striking to form a union in the, one of the most powerful anti-union companies in the country, right? The auto industry was like the white whale of the labor movement and workers actually occupied plants uh, for, for days and weeks. And even it was really only when the governor of Michigan refused to call in uh, troops to, you know, do what had been done in a lot of other um, labor struggles, which was shoot and kill yeah, and maim uh, Henry workers. Um, you know, it was only then that um, uh, the 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 auto companies were like, okay, fine, we'll sit, we'll come to the table, we'll sit down, and we'll talk about recognizing your union and meeting your demands, so on and you, so forth. You know, this is true not only in terms of labor, but in terms of so many other struggles for social justice. People need to read American history. There's mm -hmm. so much to be learned from history. There is so much to be learned about, number one, these struggles. This is not the first time this has happened. Number two, uh, don't just look at the times in the past when the problem appeared. Look at the times in the past when the problem solvers appeared and how did they do it? That's true not only in terms of um, labor, but in terms of so many other things. Really makes me happy to think of a bunch of millennials sitting there reading a labor uh, um, uh, a labor pamphlet from the 1930s because that's exactly the kind of thing that needs to happen. So what was it? Was the Koch brothers? I would think the Powell memo, the whole Koch brothers, is that when it all started this attack on labor, 1970s, 1980s? So I'm, cha I'm channeling my my historian advisors when I say it was a number of things, right? Because in in um in many ways the gains that labor made in you know from you know 1933 35 to the mid 40s, right? This this was an incredible moment, um, as we've already said. Um, the the amount of worker struggles happening across the country in sectors all across the board was in was immense right the number of strikes was incredible the number of unions that were cropping up um, the the split of the uh, the creation of the CIO uh, splitting from the AFL because the AFL was the American Federation of Labor was more focused on craft unionism whereas the CIO unions wanted to unionize the mass industrial workforce. And uh, you know, but you had this sort of divide inherent in the labor movement of we're the specialized workers. We deserve protection more than the the unwashed masses who just go into these factories and do, you know, like repetitive motions all day, yada, yada, yada. So you had, you know, the, the, the kind of in, intense years where labor made a lot of gains. The moment um, that, you know, the economy started to backslide and, you know, more uh, right-wingers, the Dixiecrats, Republicans kind of came in, they they took aim at labor yeah, they in sure the 1940s. Did. And that is where Taft-Hartley comes from, mm -hmm. right? And so Taft-Hartley, I think, is almost like the, the, it's like the poison pill that was put inside the labor movement that has really, to this day, a lot of the things that we're talking about, like why it's so hard to unionize your workplace, why, you know, folks in Bessemer have had such a rough time, why Christian Smalls and the Amazon Labor Union were fighting such an uphill battle. A lot of that goes back to Taft-Hartley, right? Because another thing that you see in the 1930s, another reason labor had so much power is because workers could support one another in more robust ways than they are legally allowed to today. So like the thing that I think is probably the most important tool that the ruling class took away from the labor movement with the Taft-Hartley Act in 1947 was it made it illegal to do um, sympathy strikes and secondary 
boycotts. This is something that you saw in those years in the 1930s and early 40s where if you had one workplace struggle where workers were saying, we're going to go on strike, then you saw other workers in around the same area saying, we're going to strike with you, right? We we think this is wrong. Screw it. We're going to launch a general strike. There were general strikes in Minneapolis, Toledo, San Francisco. Even before that, there were general strikes in Seattle in like 1919, right? This was workers collectively saying like, we are going to use labor's greatest power, which is withholding our labor from the economy until our demands are met. And we're going to do it in concert with one another. This gave workers a lot of power that we do not currently have because Taft-Hartley made that illegal, right? And, um, so you know, so I think Taft, that our- tell, tell people basically what are the basic pillars of Taft-Hartley? Well, it's it's a it's a grab bag of awful stuff, right? I mean, but like like I said, it-, it um, it, it uh, wiped away solidarity strikes, secondary strikes, and, and you know, it, it even, it, that's not to say that it wrote these things out of history. It just meant that, like, if you wanted to rely on the National Labor Relations Board to enforce labor law, but you committed one of these offenses, you mm. were on your own, right? Same okay. thing with a wildcat strike. A wildcat strike like many that we saw in the 30s and 40s, are strikes that are called by the rank and file but have not been approved by the union leadership. Okay. And so Taft-Hartley you know, basically said that like no wildcat strike can get the kind of treatment that and protection that a, a, a official strike would. But it did more than that. Uh, it abolished the closed shop policy where you know an employer has to hire union workers and it really – opened the door for right to work, which has been, um, you know, a, a, the bane of many unions existence in states across the country, which essentially I'm, I'm skating over a lot of this, but right to work has been very devastating because what it does is it essentially makes it illegal for unions to automatically deduct dues from your paycheck, even if you yourself are in a unionized shop and you benefit from the negotiations that the labor union right. does on your behalf, right. right? And so this is essentially a way to gut unions and 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 bleed them dry uh, of the money that they need to be able to represent right. uh, their fellow workers adequately. Um, I want to go back a little bit, just give a shout, shout out to a great woman in American history, Frances Perkins. Uh, a lot of the establishment of the, the New Deal uh, pro-labor um, uh, forces and the FDR administration was because of Frances Perkins. And I think um, too many people don't know about the great work that she did. Um, when you just started talking about the introduction of neoliberalism, uh, the trade agreements and so forth, that's why I want to ask you about the relationship between labor and the Democratic Party. Because the Democratic Party prior to that time, uh, given the fact that FDR was a Democrat, the New Deal uh, social contract, the Democrats were not only in word, but in action pretty solidly on the side of labor. Uh, with Bill Clinton, that starts to change with the um, uh, Democratic Leadership Council, the embrace of neoliberalism. Is that where the, the crack began to, began to emerge between the Democratic Party uh, and labor? And where does that stand now? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really sad story. And I feel like, you know, this is like, some, it's very much something that historians are still debating, like, you know, where that start, 
why did it happen, right? Um, you know, Thomas Frank, who, who founded The Baffler, where I got my start, you know, has his uh, kind of <laughs> thesis in his book, Listen Liberal, about how the Democrats politically decided that organized labor was not did not represent the constituency that they felt um, their future depended on. In the 90s, they really felt that the future was this kind of new professional class um, of, you know, suburban dwelling consultant level, uh, you know, well-educated uh, electorate, right, that, you know, they put all their chips on. And so, so in it's a dual, it's a double helix kind of story, right? Because one side of this story is the institutional abandonment of the labor movement as, um, you know, like a powerful political force that either party felt they needed to listen to. But you can't just ignore, uh, you know, a, a lion, you know, like standing outside your door. You have to weaken it. You have to make it, you know, right. like a, a, a very hurt animal. And that mm -hmm. is what happened. So what we call neoliberalism in many ways was the war on labor. It was yeah. the disciplining of a labor movement that had gotten too uppity in the decades past. Now, because we had economic justifications for doing that, right? We mm -hmm. had the, the you know, yeah. uh, economic turmoil of the 70s and 80s that was very much used to point the finger at labor, mm -hmm. right? You know, like in and to say, like, it's because the unions are demanding too much mm -hmm. that the poor mm -hmm. businesses can't keep mm -hmm. up with international competition mm -hmm. coming from Germany and Japan and so on and so forth. Even though in Germany so, they treat them so much better. Yeah. I mean, like, so it, it's – so neoliberalism was – as much a project of smashing organized labor power as it was sort of restructuring the whole political economy in a way that sort of bottomed out the economic conditions upon which the organized labor movement in this country had built itself okay. up, right? And so that's where you get, you know, like towns like Flint, unfortunately. And then you also, um, but it's not like, all the unionized workforces disappeared because all of the industrial manufacturing left, right? The other part of that story is this sort of backslide of organized labor, right? Starting in many ways with the um, kind of Chrysler bailout. I think that was in 1979. And a reason that is important is because a lot of the things that the strikes of the past year were, uh, were ostensibly about kind of go back to that period in when Chrysler was bailed out, when the government stepped in and it said, we're going to keep you afloat, but you have to cut labor costs. You have to kind of institute a two-tier employment system so that, you know, you, you can't afford to hire these well-paid, you know, union workers. You have to create a lower tier of underpaid, mm. underprotected mm. workers with fewer benefits. Mm. And so then the, the whole, the, the next half century, was basically companies always threatening to have to move, right, or have to close down or have to downsize if the unions or workers in general, because a lot of workers were non-unionized, if workers in general didn't take less, right, that we had, we were no longer bargaining, we were begging. This is what a lot of, um, you know, and organizers you were the enemy. will say. You were the enemy if you, didn't, uh, if you didn't comply. You were the enemy of American economic good if you didn't comply. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, you were painted as, um, yeah, like you know, uh, the 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 kind of 
enemy of you were the greedy ones instead of people talking about the corporate elite being the greedy ones it was these people trying to great gain more benefits and and safety and dignity at work they were the greedy ones yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So, 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 so i mean like it's it's all that stuff put put together right yeah. and, and and the last thing i'd say about reagan right is um you know reagan when he broke the pat coast strike in 1981 which was a hugely significant moment um what was happening also in the uk with thatcher going to war with the miners and other unions it, it, it shows you that again the spear of neoliberalism the tip of the spear of neoliberalism is the war on labor, labor right mm -hmm. and, and so that. that's an essential part here but it wasn't just reagan it was a cascading effect yeah. so when yeah. all these things started to converge yeah. And Reagan declared open season on the yeah. labor movement. You started to see a lot more employers, especially in the private sector, say, we're going to do that. We're, if workers want to strike, we're going to fire them all and uh -huh. we're going to replace them all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the whole thing started with the Republican, but no Democrat stopped it. And then you have someone yeah, like Democrats Joe Biden saying it. he's, you know, he's so pro-labor, but the PRO Act, of course, has not been passed and so forth. Well, clearly the pendulum now seems to be sway, um, swinging back. Uh, as, as you said, you can't overestimate the importance um, and the excitement that people feel about what just happened at uh, the JFK Amazon warehouse. Um, it, I think that this will have a cascading effect. I think whether it has to do with what happens in, in Bessemer now and also, or the other Amazon uh, facilities. And I was going to ask you, you've got John Deere, you've got Nabisco, you've got Kellogg. Do you see this just really with tentacles uh, that just uh, create more enthusiasm, passion, excitement, and success for the labor movement nationally now, not just at Amazon? I do. Um, and, and, you know, the I, I always joke, um, you know, now that, that I'm the editor-in-chief here at The Real News, right, the past five years or so have taught me to be exceedingly humble when it comes to making political predictions, right? None of us thought Trump would be president. None of us expected a pandemic would happen. Uh, you know, like it's, th th there are a lot of things that have happened that, again, have made me a little hesitant to say I know exactly how where things are going to go. But what I can say is that um, there is a lot of, the a lot of the, anger, a lot of the motivation, a lot of the solidarity, a lot of the feelings uh, that we deserve more exist well beyond the JFK 8 warehouse, right? Well I mean, beyond the labor movement. Very much so. Um, very, very much so. And, and you know, this is, this is what I do for a living, right? It's like my main role, you know, at, at The Real News is I interview workers, right? And, and you know, I talk to them about their lives, their jobs, their dreams, their struggles. I wrote a, you know, did a book of interviews with 10 workers uh, at what was then the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, interview them at Working People. I interview them here at The Real News. I hear of, from a lot of folks Everyone's different. Everyone's kind of um, conditions and struggles are different, but there are a lot of connecting points, a lot of things that folks are feeling in common. Maybe they don't know how common those feelings are, but that's what makes, you know, what we do, I think, one essential part of this much larger picture, right, is um, – you know, there's we were calling the strikes that happened in, in 2021 a strike wave. 
when a lot of folks in labor were saying, well, let's pump the brakes, you know, this isn't necessarily strike wave, not just because when you compare it to like past strike waves, we were still very much on the low end of strikes that were happening. But also there's something to, to become a strike wave means that there's something sort of self-perpetuating about it. It's like at a, at a sports game, right? If you're at a football game and you see a wave, right? If like 20 different people in different parts of the stands lift their hands up, but they're not doing it in unison. That that does not a wave make, right? You have to have the whole sort of arena building off of each other, coordinating and responding to what uh, other people are doing. That's what I think we're starting to see happen. We're starting to see more folks look at the other struggles that are happening, look at the other victories and learn from the other losses, right? Because over the past year, I did talk to a lot of striking workers at Kellogg's, at, at Frito-Lay, at, you know, yeah, like you said, John Deere, Columbia University, John Denaire Desserts Plant in California. A lot of folks in different industries went on strike. A lot of them did say, yeah, we were watching Bessemer. We we got inspired by Bessemer, right? Or they now folks are saying, we see what's happening at Starbucks and we are floored yeah, because, you know, Starbucks and Amazon, again, two like private company, corporation powerhouses in this country are now faced with um, not just like one, uh, you know, shop that's unionizing, but a full on assault. Right. A full on worker rank and file revolt, because what's happening at at Starbucks is exactly what Amazon does not want to have happen at Amazon. Right. Yeah. Because if you if one person <laughs> succeeds, then boom, what did we see? We saw like a bunch of other stores say, like, we're filing for a union election, too. You cannot stop the working class when it is rolling. And they know that. And that's why they have tried so hard for so long to kill the labor movement, to turn people against unions, to make <clears throat> workers feel like we don't deserve more than what we get. I think that the system overplayed its hand. Uh, it got too... Um it hasn't been careful. And over the last few years, there has been so much pent up, really rage, so much pent up frustration and despair. And I think especially during COVID, it was made so clear that the system as it now exists really doesn't care whether people live or die. I think people saw that the, the bankruptcy, the moral bankruptcy of the neoliberal system became so obvious that now there's this, as they say, intersectionality. It doesn't even matter if you're coming from, uh, from the perspective of labor, you're coming from the perspective of environmental justice, you're coming from the perspective of racial or criminal justice. You see it's all the same sort of monstrous holding people down. Um, in order to serve a very few, this sort of reversion uh, to an aristocratic paradigm that people instinctively know America is not supposed to be about. And all of the ways in which the system said, no, we'll take care of you, it just simply has, has demonstrated over the last few years, not only is it not going to take care of you, it is willing to sacrifice your very life um, to protect itself. So this is a very exciting time. And I think anytime someone like a Christian Smalls is able uh, to have this kind of success, it does create a wave because people go, well, maybe it could happen here. And not just maybe it could happen here at this warehouse or in this industry where we could unionize, but all across the political spectrum that maybe we can break free of the systemic shackling of, of people where economic opportunities are decreased and diminished to such an extent that people feel almost like, what have I got to lose? Um, and this is like, um, such a wonderful thing because people feel that they can use the tools of something that is legal, that is, uh, 
obviously righteous, but is legal, is is part of a great tradition in America. And so to see people sort of reinvigorate and rediscover something that was already there, um, as you well know, uh, and with people like yourself, Max, you can, to explain to people, because I think, you know, even in the conversation we've had here tonight, you, you said a lot of things that people within the labor movement already know. But the people outside the labor movement don't know. They know that what happened was a big deal, but they don't necessarily know the history. They don't know what happened in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s. Um, they don't know the kind of struggles and sacrifices. Like you said, there were, um, there were you know, corporate bosses who shot at people who were trying and, and you know, brought out the police against people who were trying to unionize. Um, many of our ancestors struggled and sacrificed mightily uh, for us to have the, uh, um, the opportunities for unionization that exist today, but they have been so shut down. Now, I remember, I'm old enough to remember when none of us were eating grapes uh, because of Cesar Chavez. My brother uh, worked for Cesar Chavez, um, and that was kind of the last time that I can remember where the popular imagination was so... Um, and, and Dolores de Huerta, I mean, we were all so excited. And this seems like another moment when we can all look at what's happening in labor and go, wow, you did it. Good on you. Uh, anything else yeah. you want to explain to people before we leave? Or um... Yeah, well, just, just to kind of pick up on that, and I, I really appreciate you. Um, I mean, I'm so grateful to come on the show and love everything that, that you're doing. And thank you for letting me yak on about labor and labor history for so long. Um, I hope that it was useful to folks watching. But useful. I just to pick up on that point is, um, yeah, there's something really beautiful about that history because it's our That's history, right? right? It's and, and American it's like when you history. Learn, yeah. It's no. like when you learn about your ancestors and the people whose lives and struggles – in ways, in many ways, made you who you are, but you didn't know about it right. yet until you started to learn it, right? Yeah. It's already part of us. Yeah. We just have been taught to forget it. And that's why I think folks should read books like Kim Kelly's new book, The Untold History of American Labor, that um, has a million great stories like this. And you'll see that, in fact, like this is written all throughout our history, right? And it's still happening now all around us. And we need to take hold of that history, as our friend Harvey J.K. would say, right? Because like I said, it is ours. It is part of our legacy. It is part of what has made this country what it is. It's part of what's made us what it is. And I think just to um, piggyback on one thing you said, Miriam, you know, there is something really important that has happened, I think, in the minds and hearts of a lot of workers over the course of COVID-19. Right. And that's that's not to say that the strikes that we all saw uh, over the past year just happened because of COVID-19. A lot of folks that I talked to at these places where they were on strike had worked there for decades. Right. So they put up with a lot. They put up with a financial recession and cutbacks and all that stuff. But it was really this moment that pushed them over the edge. And I think it's important for us to ask why. This is essentially the question that I ask in the book of interviews that I did, where I speak in depth to workers not just about what they faced on the job, but about who they are, where they come from, their life story, what it was like for them going through COVID-19 over uh, the first year of the pandemic. 
because that stuff really matters. You need to understand the humanity of our neighbors and our fellow co-workers if you're going to try to understand what the labor <clears throat> movement is and what it can be and where it can go because it's not just unions, right? It's people. It has always been people. Um, one of my one of the favorite things that's at, one of the things that's been said on my show that is like always stuck with me was said by the great labor organizer Cooper Carraway in South Dakota. Um, and he told me, he said, look, the labor movement didn't start the first time a group of workers sat down in a hall and called themselves the amalgamated, you know, like uh, bricklayers and what have you. He said, from the moment one human being had to serve another to survive the labor movement was born, right? And and the labor movement, you know, in that sense is always that struggle for human dignity, for, for the sanctity of human life, for the justice that we know is trampled upon when people's lives are treated with such callous disregard for the sake of profit and control and so on and so forth. That's what I try to do in, you know, the work that I do is remind people just how valuable we are. Uh, all of us and how much we mean to one another, how much you can look outside, look at the built world. Workers build that. People put their hands on that. People made the world that we all currently enjoy and they all had lives and families and backstories. And that is the stuff that we need to reconnect with if we're going to reconnect with one another, if we're going to build that sort of solidarity <clears throat> that, that we've forgotten because we've been so alienated from each other. We've become so individualistic. We've lost that sense of connection connectedness to our fellow workers and our fellow human beings. And I think that the more that we tell these stories, the more that we share our stories openly and vulnerably, the more that we can actually see that every Christmas, our family watches It's a Wonderful Life. One of the most, uh, you know, one of the one of the most favored movies in all of, you know, like U.S. cinema. Right. George, the whole point of that movie is to show you that you cannot measure the impact of one person's life. Right. You know, like that, that all of the little interactions you have, all the acts of kindness, all of the things that you do help make the world that you inhabit, even if you don't recognize how big of an imprint that you've had. We have just lived through two years. where We have lost over a million people to COVID-19, to say nothing of the people who have been infected and are now no longer themselves because they're dealing with long-term COVID, so on and so forth. People who got kicked out of their homes because the eviction moratorium lapsed, right? This is another thing that Cooper Carraway said to me, right, is that you, you really cannot, workers know that you cannot measure that loss, right? Workers who have lost uh, co-workers, they have not, it's not just someone who's not coming in and clocking in every day. It is a little league coach. It is a fellow parishioner. It is a husband, a wife, a brother. It is a son. It is people who had so much to give this world who are now just gone. And so I think that a lot of workers now, having gone through this COVID-19 pandemic, having seen that tremendous loss, they have been told both that they were essential at the same time that it was made very clear that this system valued their labor as essential, but did not value our lives as essential. And I think we need to reclaim that. We need to say, no, we matter. We he we are here. We are on this planet. We have, there's more to life than this. And I think that when it comes down to it, that is the heart and soul of the labor movement is the, the, again, the struggle to demand more because there's got to be more to this and well, people are doing that everywhere or all around us. And I think that is what gives me hope. 
Over the last few decades, Americans have been trained to expect too little. And Americans have been told that if you will take little, we will have a better economy that serves everyone. And of course, this is goes counter to the evidence, including if you look at European countries, take something like Germany, where the economic expansion goes hand in hand with greater rights for unions, uh, uh, the laws that say certain workers workers have to be on boards, etc. So I think, you know, I was at a, at a rally today about canceling the college loan debt. I don't think the average American realizes that in most advanced countries, college is either free or very, very inexpensive. So I think people are waking up. I think people are waking up, first of all, in terms of understanding their own pain, their own pain and the pain of their loved ones. They're waking up in terms of recognizing that in other countries, people are actually treated better and we're the richest. And also people, I do think, have an instinctive understanding that in America, we're supposed to at least try to have this universality of opportunity. We've never totally embodied it. We've never totally manifested it. But there have been times in our history where at least there was a social agreement and consensus that we were supposed to try. And there's been this aberrational chapter for the last 40 years where the wool has been pulled over people's eyes, this idea that if you will become a serf, somehow that will be better for everybody. And uh, the system continues to work, but for fewer and fewer people. If you make it into the club in America, it's a, a very forgiving place, too. You can make mistakes. It takes care of you. The problem in America today is that not enough people can get into the club. The whole idea of upward mobility has become almost like a sick joke because people get shackled um, in, in jobs and situations where they, they, like you said, the man just says, you know, I go to work, then I go to my car. Uh, what people have to go through, the lack of dignity, the lack of upward mobility, the lack of opportunity, it's now so blaringly obvious. Um, and it's a good thing that people aren't going to take it anymore. But it's also a wonderful thing that people have the Christian Smalls to lead them, that people have the Max Alvarez's to lead them, and all of the people, both that we know and that we don't know, who are working day in and day out to course correct. America has become like a, like a car that has careened off the road. And uh, our generation has to do what other generations have done, and that's put it back on track. God bless you, Max. I think you're the best. Uh, anything you want to tell people about where they can find you? I've already talked about your Twitter handle. Anything else you want people to know before we uh, before we let you go? Um, yeah. So again, thank you so much for having me on and for the incredible conversation. Um, I guess the two things that I would just say, um, well, three, one, yeah, please um, go check out um, the book, not because of me, but because these are 10 stories from workers th that deserve to be heard. But right? that, and, um, that book will not be published until June, right? It's coming out in, yeah, June from, from okay. Orbooks. Okay. Um, and, um, you know, if, if that's the type of, you know, work that is meaningful to you, you should please check out what we're doing here at the Real News Network, right? Because it's not just my interviews with workers. We do a lot of incredible and important work on a week-to-week -week basis um, covering the prison industrial complex, the police industrial complex, the battle for voting rights, the fight, you know, to stop climate chaos, uh, the covering the war in Ukraine, right? We do a lot of work that lifts up the voices of the people on the front lines of these struggles and fights for a better world. And we try to reach people in a way that engages them as active stakeholders and defenders of this world, because this is ultimately the only world 
that we've got. So please support the real news and please fight for this world because that is, I guess, the culminating point of this entire conversation. The labor movement is important in and of itself because working people deserve dignity. They deserve more than what they get in this country to say nothing of what they get around the world. But also because the labor movement is one of a number of avenues that we have to building the broad working class solidarity that we need to save this planet from dying, to save the, the, the ravages of capitalism and corporate greed and political corruption from literally killing the one home that we all have. The newest IPCC report came out and it is bleak. We can't keep kicking <coughs> this down the road. We need to do something or we are not going to have much of a planet to live in, let alone a future worth living in. And so why do I focus on the labor movement because people actually have to come together. They have to work together and they have to do, they can, and when they do that, they can do incredible things like unionize an Amazon warehouse with 8,000 plus workers, right? If we can build that sort of grassroots solidarity and come together in that way, link arms and actually fight for something worth fighting for, I think that that is the only way that we can actually save this planet. And I really, really encourage all of us to do what we can to make that possible. Well, as my mother would say, from your mouth to God's ears, um, we'll, we'll make it happen. I have faith in us. Generations of Americans have done it before, and we're going to do it in our time. God bless you, darling. Thank you very, very much for being with us. Bye-bye. Thank you, Marianne. Okay, everybody. I, I think you know now why I was so excited to have Max Alvarez talk to us tonight. This is an extraordinary moment. Like Max was saying, the, um, the chapter, it will be one for the books. This whole um, extraordinary uh, happening at the JFK 8 warehouse, Amazon warehouse in Staten Island, the unionization drive that was led by um, led by Christian Smalls. And I'm sure that Christian would be the first person to say that he himself stands on the shoulders of giants, one of whom is Max Alvarez, the people at Bessemer, the people at Nabisco, the people at Kellogg, and of course the people in history throughout history who have taken the hits, who have taken the stands, who have taken made the struggles and the sacrifices. Um, in this area, as in so many, let's remember that uh, we're going through very little that other generations have not gone through. Um, history works like a spiral. These stories are just reiterated, and uh, it's our turn. Um, we have always been, uh, from the very, very beginning of this country, um, a bit of a struggle that's sort of built into the cake. It's built into our DNA between people who are seeking to stand on very enlightened principles that all men are created equal, and that all men are created by God with the inalienable rights of life and liberty and the pursuits of happiness, and, and forces within that generation who have um, no interest in seeing that happen, usually because of their own economic interests, and sometimes have proven, and still do, that they will take even violent action to make sure that it doesn't. Those forces have been pushed back before, and they're going to be pushed back now. They are being pushed back now. Um, the better angels of America... Uh, need to step forward, and um, I believe that they are. This is a week to celebrate. This is not a week to despair. This is a week to celebrate. Uh, and I know that I speak for everybody in uh, giving a lot of thanks, a lot of kudos to Christian Smalls. He gave a lot of us hope. So make sure you check out Maximilian Alvarez, the Real News Network, and um, if you see a picket line, don't you dare cross it. Thanks so much. See you later.